Just imagining them packing for to go out on the shoots and Louis like, have to bring my guitar. This won't work unless I have, I'm armed with a guitar. Yeah, can we just get rid of some someone's suitcase because I need to bring my guitar. We don't need more cameras. I just need this guitar and we've got a documentary on our hands. Hello and welcome to the second episode of All the Way Through, a look through the whole Louis Theroux back catalogue from start to finish and in the attempt to try and find out whether we still love Louis as much as we did in the first place. Uh, that's me, Matthew Dunn miles and I'm joined by Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello. Uh, How so are you the sec- today? <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, thank you very much. <laughs> Good, glad to hear it. So the last episode we did was the Born Again Christians episode, and now we have moved on to a slightly more extraterrestrial world. The truth is out there. The truth is out there. It's 1998, and Louis is in Southwest America on the hunt for a close encounter of some kind. It's just struck me that this is prime X-Files era. There is at least three references to x-files throughout the episode oh man i I don't know if i noticed any of that (laughs) did you not there was a truth is out there watch the skies there was something else as well watch the skies i did here the episode opens with a dead cow (laughs) it does doesn't it it opens with a dead cow having its eyes licked by a dog this is fear and loathing louis in nevada essentially it is quite a shocking opening really Compared to the episode before, I think. This is very gonzo. I thought this episode was really quite out there in terms of the feel and also the way it's shot. But it does feel like Hunter S. Thompson meets Jacob Rees-Mogg and then they had a child and then Louis Theroux came out. How offensive. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what I mean is it's really bizarre and very edgy, but then there is still this very Oxbridge gentlemanliness to Louis throughout. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll get to it later, but he very politely and diligently puts bits of that cow into jars later. He does. Despite bulking. <laughs> like the best lab assistant going. Okay, so we start in Palm Springs. We do. Louis is heading to meet Thor Templar at the headquarters of the Earth protectorate is that right i was going to quiz you on this the movement is called the alien resistance movement right can you give me thor templar's full title uh no he is and he has this on his business cards lord commander of the earth protectorate in the alien resistance movement he was actually a venture capitalist which this is the kind of buzzwords that people would use in in vcs in investor money sort of thing he has got the chat for sure the salesman chat so how would you describe Thor? He comes out, he's dressed in knockoff army gear. Yeah, quite like the look. I quite like the berries. He looks like a kind of cosplayer from Street Fighter or the Colonel character from Metal Gear Solid. He has a very faux military vibe. Yeah, but it's slightly off-brand, like you say, like his mum bought it at the supermarket. And it's not the licensed version of the costume. He would never get confused for a real soldier, let's be honest. I think he comes off as remarkably well-spoken, really articulate, and that makes what he's saying all the more ridiculous and terrifying. (laughs) So Thor goes all in from the very beginning. One of his first quotes is, more people have seen extraterrestrials than any other beings other than humans. Yep. That's an incredible stat. I mean, it's a complete lies, but... It's an incredible thought to have in your brain. He goes on then to say more people have seen aliens than they have seen Jesus, the Virgin Mary, or Buddha. Because you see them quite a lot. So You do. Is he counting statues? The delivery of all of this was just so certain. You could see how it would win a lot of people over. But when you think about what he's actually saying... It's yeah. mental. Thor's main business as part of the alien resistance movement, he says he removes implants from the general public, but he's also selling a lot of dodgy merch, essentially. Which he shows a few examples of that Louis allowed to touch, including, I have noted down, the body protector. What was that again? I think that was a little circular thing that kind of looked like a pin badge, but with nothing on it, that seemed to really do nothing but was described as UFO technology because the way their technology works is there's no technology actually involved. It's all about, I don't know, alien rays coming down or something like that. It was, and a lot of the power of the mind. 
Yeah. It was about using your consciousness and mental energy to stop these alien forces, which Thor had come into contact with quite a lot in his career. On Thor's foe military costume was two patches that reflected his 20 kills of alien species so far. And they really kind of looked like a new metal skate band logo. If someone told me that he was just a big alien ant farm fan, I wouldn't have doubted it. He's quick to tell Lou there's no joy in this. There's no joy in the killing of these aliens. This is very much a job for Thor. Yeah, yeah, of course. He also runs through the other items that he sells to people who also need to detect and kill aliens, some of which included the UFO detector, which cost $350, which seemed to just be some kind of radio. And of course, the alien mutilator, which was a shotgun. So this is the kind of start of, of something which I think is a really interesting theme in this, which is the commercialization of this UFO phenomenon and how people legitimately made money enough to live on the back of this movement. I don't know whether Thor had another job as well or he was using all his venture capitalist money, slowly dwindling it away, building mental energy rods to stop aliens. But the thing is, he was alive with a house and a lot of merchandise that he was apparently selling for ridiculous amounts of money. And that probably goes into the fact that you said before about his kind of power persuasion. But Louis, I noted down that Louis looks quite concerned through all of this. He's not being won over, I don't think, by the, the sort of money side of it. No, I think he's quite enjoying the merchandise. I think there is a childlike element of Louis in this that, that he quite enjoys having a prop to play with in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. In the next, or the, the between scene in this Louis documentary, they get into the car and Thor tells Louis that he's had contact with UFOs, both positive and negative, which means he's had some good times with aliens. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't clock that he said that there was good times as well. Yeah, he didn't really go into detail, but... How must they feel about these patches, though? Glorifying the amount of kills he's had on these grey beings. <laughs> Maybe they don't know what I mean. Maybe they just think he loves Alien Ant Farm. <laughs> I think the funniest question Louis asks Thor was um, asking about his family and whether they appreciate what he does. And the question is, do they think you're cracked? Which Thor replies, no, apparently they don't. They are they are very much on board with his, his live mission. They all believe the same as him. Convenient. Then in the car, they go off to this square, Giant Rock, as it's known. George Van Tassel lived under the rock. Yeah. That's what I've written down. I think I meant to do more research into him. Should I look him <laughs> I'll, up? <laughs> I'll be honest, I have exactly the same thing written down. <laughs> Wait, let's look him up. Hang on. No, let's not. Let's just speculate. Let's wildly speculate. Do you think he built a house in the rock itself or just lived under it like a termite? Well, I think they showed a little picture of him in the space under the rock and he'd kind of burrowed it out and made he had some chairs and stuff. This is an incredible Grand Designs pre-Kevin <laughs> McLeod. Maybe George Van Tassel was the original. He clearly went way over budget. Kevin comes around, has a look around. They haven't even put the scaffolding up. I feel like Van Tassel missed his time, though, because if he'd been alive for Airbnb, he would have made a fortune. The main thing that stood out to me in this quite mad sequence at Giant Rock, Louis dons the cyborg helmet, which is a bicycling helmet with some stuff stuck to it. There's no getting around that. No. Also, Thor has brought an axe with which to kill aliens. Going back to basics. He then tells Louis that the aliens don't have bone structure like people. They're all just gooey type liquid inside. I mean, I don't want to get all poetic on us, but aren't we all gooey type liquid inside, really? Deep down. So Louis gets dressed up and fires the mental energy guns, which is very much the theme of this young Louis, who is, I love to wear an outfit. Last week with the Born Again Christians... He was in the car driving around doing his, his preaching with the number of the preacher's answer machine on. And this week he has a bicycle hammer on, as quick as you can say, giant rock, and is out there fighting aliens. And makes sound effects again, in the same manner as he did when he was overexcited while doing the preaching. You'd get them to physically manifest with that weapon. Oh, I'm going like that, I'm going to go. <laughs> the thing is as well, that it isn't just Thor and Louis. There is Liz, who up till this point has been a fairly silent figure and has just watched along as Thor explains things. 
But then Liz becomes the target for Louis's mental energy gun. He's looking through the scope and he says, I've got the red dots trained on you. They say it's all about kind of channeling your mental energy. And Louis says, you're feeling nothing, even though I have a superior intellect. (laughs) (laughs) Which says a lot about what he thinks of Liz. I have noted down by this point, kind of into the berries, not going to lie. Yeah, the berries were great. I think the outfits were really strong. I think the alien resistance movement, possibly out of all the people we meet, know their brand and have really worked on the image. I imagine that we're we're dressed in those outfits. I want everyone to imagine every week that we're wearing a themed outfit for the episode. Okay. So I've got okay. my, my berry on right now. Yeah, and I have my patches saying I have 20 alien girls. So we move on to... Crestone, Colorado, is that right? Oh, yeah. It's riddled with portals. And we're with Chris O'Brien. It's a very standard name. Yeah. It's, it's actually a little bit underwhelming once you go from Thor Templar to Chris O'Brien. I originally missed Chris's name and just wrote down that he looked like a fake Wynn Butler from Arcade Fire. Okay, that's interesting because I went for he has big Bill Hicks vibes. I feel like those two are quite different. Yeah, different moods, definitely. Yeah. I felt like he was very Bill Hicks. Very kind Southern voice, but saying some very intense stuff at you. He talks about this later, but he had met aliens when he was seven years old, who had followed him round his neighbourhood in 1963. And this was why he has this kind of lifelong obsession with finding UFOs. Is this his full-time job? He had a keyboard at a later point, so maybe he's a session musician as well or a nightclub singer. Yeah, maybe he works nights and then aliens during the day. Yeah, he does his arcade fire covers <laughs> at night <laughs> and then does his Bill Hicks stand-up does routines. stand-up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is interesting because how does he survive doing this? He must have a normal job. And they must all know that he's really into aliens. Or maybe they didn't and this was how they found out when it was finally aired on the BBC. So Chris O'Brien's main deal is he's concerned that aliens are allegedly mutilating livestock in the area and it's becoming a big problem. And he's noticed patterns of it in different places and in different areas of the US. There are different techniques that seem to be popular, which he goes into great detail about. They go to initially see a woman called Virginia Sutherland, a rancher who had her cow's testes chopped off, clean off by an alien. And then there's other kind of talk about these animals. And apparently originally the first one ever was called Snippy the Horse, who was actually called Lady, but the owners decided that it would be a better story if it was called Snippy the Horse. That lost its genitalia. Yeah. I noted that basically someone claimed they saw a UFO before or during or after the mutilation, but she didn't have her glasses on. So she couldn't be more specific about what it looked like. Because you never have your glasses when you need them, do you? So I did a little bit of digging to see if there was a really obvious solution to this whole mutilation thing. It turns out there's not. This, this has been the subject of two independent federal investigations in the United States. There is an article by a guy called Ben Meserich who wrote a book called The 37th Parallel, The Secret Truth Behind America's UFO Highway. And in it, he says that the phenomenon of animal mutilations has been mocked as the products of some sort of Midwestern mass hysteria and shrouded in secrecy. But it once inspired a multi-state investigation involved a Democratic senator from Colorado, the FBI, at least one satanic cult, and a near decade-long open case file that ended right back where it started, with no solution. That's really incredible. If this was happening in your local area, you would become slightly obsessed with this. You're right, this is the one area of the documentary where... I'm not saying I could be won over to believe that aliens exist, but this is the one thing that makes me pause and go, okay, hang on. What's actually happening here? But there is a part of me also that remembers, you know, crop circles and things like that. Copycats tend to do things for attention and maybe they're doing horrible things like coring out cows in fields, which would be weird. I don't know why anyone would do that, but... There's a lot of strange people. So there's been over 10,000. This has happened 10,000 times. I know I'm starting to sound like a truther of some sort or some sort of alien conspiracy theorist with this one. I'm not saying it is aliens, but it is the very, very weird occurrence. It's very weird. So after I've done building up Chris O'Brien, I'm now about to shoot him down because we go to his house and he kind of educates Louis and us, the viewers, through the different types of alien species that are out there. 
he has these drawings that he's done of particular alien species. I've got a few listed. One was the Nordic type, which was tall with liquid blue eyes, was the description, which I don't really buy as an alien type. This felt a bit racist. (laughs) Chris describes it as... They look like people, but there's a quality that doesn't seem quite right because they are tall and look like Nordic people, Scandinavian people, I suppose. Okay, here's a theory. Chris O'Brien at school was in love with a girl. She runs off with the newest addition to the school, who's uh, an immigrant from Sweden. Swedish exchange student, yep. Yeah, Klaus. Classic tale. (laughs) And then, next thing you know, he's built a whole theory about how Klaus is an alien. I would love if that's where the, the entire backstory of the Nordic type alien came from. And we also have the reptoid. Yeah. The leprechaun. God, that's just lazy. Again, we're, we're going borderline racism. I really didn't think the illustration looked like a leprechaun either. No, no, it was very poor. And then Bigfoot as well. Bigfoot, not an alien. Not an alien, not an alien. But this is it. This is the, the thing that kind of... It crosses into this cryptozoology area, which all mixes and merges these things into one big old conspiracy theory. If you're going to open the door to the Nordic types, you've got to believe there's Bigfoot too, essentially. The other two that I'd noted down were obviously the grey type, the classic. They have two different kinds of eyes, depending on the illustration. So either have kind of human eyes with whites or they just have black eyes, which is the like classic alien. Classic alien, standard alien, but... (laughs) Chris does draw one dressed as one of the village people. That's true. It is dressed as the by command from the village people. And then the final kind, um, I didn't get the name of, but it looked like a little elf man. And Chris told a story about someone, let's see if I can get this right, who, uh, was it a local musician? Right, this thing, it wasn't even a local musician. It was a world-class musician right. who lived around here who saw groups of these little elf-looking aliens walking in his house, just all over the shop. They would walk through the walls. Again, doesn't feel like classic alien behaviour to me. Who's going to be the world-class musician? Off the record, he would have told Louis. Who was it? Lives near here, so where are we, Colorado? Mm. I think it could be the king. What, Elvis Presley? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is the theory that he is an alien. There is. And also there is a later character, spoiler alert, who has Elvis's hair. Right. So reincarnated. Yeah, okay, let's go with that. Elvis Presley saw Alien. Heard it here first. After this point, Chris tells Louis, although he doesn't normally talk about it, he talks about why he's interested in aliens. Because, as you said already, Matt, he had an encounter when he was seven Aliens followed him around the neighbourhood for 45 minutes and he could reach out and touch them. And how does Louis get him to break down this barrier of himself that he doesn't normally do? Well, Louis does what Louis does best in this era. The power of music. He gets out his guitar. But I think Chris is really into it. Oh, yeah, I think he definitely is. And, and, and they, they make sweet music together. They, they both play Space Oddity. It's quite nice, really. Even though Louis cannot play the right chords. No. Take your protein pills and put your helmet down. After this point, we move on to the Centre for Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. C-SETI. And meet Ron and Sherry. I instantly really liked these two. Partly because Louis is carrying some chairs and says, is there anything special about these chairs? And Sherry replies, they're portable and light. Which is just a nice kind of puncturing of Louis' pomposity. It's also the classic sort of little boy trying to say something cheeky and getting shot down, which he he has that back and forth with women of a certain age. The C-SETI group, unlike our previous Thor Templar, who is looking to fight the aliens, C-SETI want to send out a diplomatic message from artists and creative people. And they say that they will not discriminate between alien types either. Sherry says, we think it's high time that racism ended. That's it. She says, God forbid we should carry it off this planet. Uh, Because Louis is commenting on the fact that she has greys on her t-shirt, which he's found out from his previous meeting with Chris O'Brien are a species and she has greys on her t-shirt 
and and feels that they should not be discriminated against as potential baddies. Her t-shirt is quite the t-shirt as well. Probably second only to the uniforms of the alien resistance movement. Strong 90s flashback looking at that thing. So they go out in search of alien life. Louis does ask, what do we think the chance of seeing something is? And Sherry replies, 50-50. Which is great odds and also terrible odds. I like those odds. They start talking about different kind of close encounters. And there's talk of close encounter of the fifth kind, which is the direct communication between aliens and humans, apparently. So they're talking about talking to the aliens. And one of the methods that they use is to flash lights into the sky in a repeated pattern in the hope that the aliens will see it and mimic the pattern and that it counts as talking to each other. And Louis asks, what if in their language you're saying screw you? (laughs) (laughs) To which Sherry very earnestly replies, we could be, that's always a danger. There is very much an anarchic element to Louis on this this tour. He feels a little bit out of control. It's a valid point though, because, you know, Morse code exists here. There could be an alien version of that. It's the hypothetical worst situation you could ever hope for. Yeah, that's a very British thing, isn't it? Let's just yeah. let's just find out where the line is right at the bottom and then we'll be comfortable. The encounter they're looking for is the nocturnal lights, which is actually the first step on the high neck scale. Okay. Okay. So Is the this first extra thing... research you've done? <laughs> Maybe I'm just pulling this from my own experiences. Maybe I have Wikipedia in front of me right now. Who knows? But the thing is that you go from nocturnal lights, which is lights in the night sky. Then you have daylight discs, which is when you see UFOs in the daytime. And then we kind of go through a number of other stages. Then it's close encounters of the first first kind. You visually see an alien. Second kind, so the, you feel the physical effect. And then the third kind is when it's in it's present. It's there and you see it. It's a bit of a confusing scale, really. But it inspired a very popular movie. And then also that sound is then used. Is it by these? Do they use the... It's Louis that does it. Louis does it. So he's really winding them up at this point and he's playing the sort of call part of that little riff from Close Encounters of the Third Kind and then he plays the answer back. Sherry and everyone else is far too polite to tell him off for it. So he just stands there grinning, waiting for something to happen. Did you get anything wrong? Not yet. Keep looking. Lovely. That's it replying. That's right. (laughs) I remember. It's my favorite movie of all time. Is it really? I did get it from the soundtrack. That's all right. I think it's a bit of a letdown, really. The thing is, I thought about this, though, and why I really liked Sea Seti was they go out in the middle of the night doing this whole flashing lights thing. They have walkie-talkie set up. There is clearly a big group of them here. It was an actual challenge to be weird in the 90s. Do you know what I mean? It, they have to put effort in to kind of meet up, go out, get walkie-talkies, get lights, find somewhere, pick a theory that they're all going to believe in and go for it. Whereas nowadays, if you wanted to be an alien conspiracy theorist, two YouTube videos and you're you're fully signed up, really. Yeah, just go on Reddit. That's it. You've subscribed to a subreddit. You are an alien conspiracy theorist. These people are proper committed believers or not even believers. They are just doing something to do something with other people. And also to open themselves up to the possibility of something. It's impressive that they even found each other in the 90s. You know, the internet wasn't that massive yet. They probably had the little cards that you used to put in the supermarket when you were trying to join a club. Do you like alien beings? Are you not a racist against greys? Can you carry five lawn chairs? Mm. (laughs) Phone Sherry. Is it that different to go out in the dark in the hope of seeing a UFO as it is to go out with a pair of binoculars and hope to see a rare bird? No, but I think with the rare bird, you know it's out there. Whereas with the UFO, you may forever be disappointed. I suppose there's an argument that maybe someone said, oh, I saw a woodpecker down there a few months ago. You should go and you'll see one. Then you go Mm. and there might not be a woodpecker there. If it was someone saying, I saw a woodpecker down there in a leather jacket and hat, and I believe it to be extraterrestrial, that's a very different story. And I think it might have used one of those apple corers to deflower my my cow. (laughs) 
That's a serious accusation you're throwing out there about the work of Pekka. Okay, so I was really intrigued to find out how the people that used to watch the skies back in the Nevada deserts in 1998 how that community has moved on in the last 20 years and what are they doing now and the one thing that really stuck out to me was the idea that commercial space travel is so nearly accessible now that people are thinking not so much what if we are invaded by aliens but what if we go and visit aliens ourselves and the organization which i thought really kind of sums this up is called ascardia also known as the Space Kingdom of Ascardia. And the idea is that this is a group of people who have launched a satellite into Earth's orbit. And they, they claim that this is their sovereign territory um, and now are saying they are a micronation. They were started by this guy called Igor Ashabeli. And I was really intrigued to find out what their kind of mission is and, and what sort of people are attracted to this sort of project. So I spoke to their chairman of parliament, who is called Lemba Opik. Yes, that Lemba Opik, the former Liberal Democrat MP, the former Mayor of London candidate and former I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here contestant. And I wanted to know why he has got himself involved in this project and what he feels that the future aims are for a group like Ascardia. So firstly, I wanted to, before we get into Ascardia in general, I wanted to ask you about your own interest in outer space and how this kind of began for you. Historically, I was destined for Ascardia. My grandfather was a professional astronomer, Ernst Julius Opik. He did some pretty pioneering work in terms of the solar system and more controversially for the time about the threat of near-Earth objects hitting the Earth and causing massive impacts. In the 1950s, that was not just avant-garde, it was regarded as pretty much crazy. In the 1980s, he was proved right. I suppose I inherited his interest in astronomy and my father's interest in physics. And I applied that to running a campaign in British Parliament about the threat of near-Earth objects. Once again, same sceptical reaction to begin with, but acceptance in the end. In that sense, I've grown up with an interest in space. And I've always believed that humanity's destiny is amongst the stars and we either travel or die. So this was purely from your grandfather's influence, or was this also things you saw on TV as a child? I was reading books which were degree level about astronomy when I was 10 or 12. Right. My father and myself had very complicated conversations about physics, things like the second law of thermodynamics, which is basically chaos theory, uh, when I was 13 or 14. And I've always thought that there's something intriguing and quite inspirational about space. So I grew up with no doubt we're meant to be up there. I still remember as one of my earliest memories watching the Apollo landings uh, and the return to Earth. One of my strongest memories was the splashdown of Apollo 13 and that was 1970. So I must have been five years old at the time. Since then I carried on studies myself and I was watching Ascardia from a, an interested distance until they approached me. And it just seemed like a natural fit. It brought together my heritage, my personal intellectual interest in the subject, and that almost spiritual belief that humanity is destined to travel. You can't really explain that. You either believe that or you don't. And I happen to believe it. So how would you describe Ascardia's overall mission and aim to someone who is completely new to this? Ascardia's mission is to create a credible and sustainable society for space when we live there. It's really as simple as that. If you think about it in terms of the colonization of planet Earth, someone had to make the trip. Somebody had to find a way to create a self-sustaining community, for example, the Pilgrim Fathers or further afield. And they couldn't keep writing home asking for supplies. In that sense, space is exactly the same. What Ascardia wants to do is, is three things to achieve that goal. Number one, to create serious scientific agenda to build the hardware that we can live in either in orbit or on other celestial bodies uh, number two to make sure we have the economic system to support that this isn't a charity it's a serious business proposition and number three to have a society which doesn't simply implode when we get there if you think about the opposite what would life be like in space without a scardia without a space nation it means that the million people living on the moon say or on mars 
would be taking all their instructions from mission control. That's not democracy, it's a dictatorship. And we know from the past, it doesn't last forever like that. So we want to create a society which is democratic and defaults to stability under stress and determines its own destiny. It's quite an ambitious agenda, but I've seen this before. I've been involved in this kind of process before. I helped to set up the Welsh Assembly in the United Kingdom, the Northern Ireland Assembly after the troubles were over. So I know that these processes can work if they're done rationally and sensibly. It just happens to be more cosmic in terms of our destination for that society. You are the chairman of parliament. What is your kind of role and duties on a day-to-day basis? When you're 15, you'd give anything to be able to say, I'm chair of parliament of Escadia, the world's first space nation. I also happen to be a member of the Supreme Space Council. And I like telling people that (laughs) because it does sound quite spectacular. In practice, the job is less glamorous than the titles. My weekly responsibilities are to deal with the generation of legislation because we're starting from a zero base in terms of our legislative platform and we have to have business legislation and we have to have citizenship uh, regulations and so forth so that's a very large part of the job Uh, then secondly it's promoting Escadia and getting people to sign up as residents which costs 100 euros per year because that's really the core of our proto-economic system and then the third thing is making sure that Escadia develops the kind of cohesion you need to to be a credible political community. So two examples, uh, we have a weekly parliamentary session most Thursday nights, and we have 28, 30 countries typically involved in that using the digital platforms. So for us, being digital is second nature. And then we have some physical meetings as well. Uh, For example, we're hoping to have a session, a convention on citizenship and law uh, fairly soon in Montreal. Uh, we'll have a, one physical sitting a year of the parliament itself, which is psychologically important just to keep the cohesion of the organisation. So it's really very much like terrestrial politics, but if you like, with a more glamorous objective, which is making this work in a way which is digital and is sustainable in space. The journey into space and the idea of extraterrestrial life are inherently linked in people's minds and also generally since the start of kind of space exploration. This is something that has been talked about. Does Scalia have an official stance on extraterrestrial beings and how they would interact if they were met with extraterrestrial life? We've got the same broad spectrum of opinion about whether there's intelligent uh, extraterrestrial life up there as the rest of the human race. There are some who are convinced that extraterrestrials live amongst us already. Others say that we're it, we're all there is in the universe. And actually, for now, it doesn't matter if you believe in aliens coming to visit us or not our society and our parliament's got its hands full creating very terrestrial legislation and creating very terrestrial spaceships that just ordinary human beings can live on if we get visitations from others we'll build a large enough capsule or a large enough entry door to let them in if they want to come and have tea with us there was a, a point in the documentary where Louis Theroux is trying to connect with a number of groups who are, are interested in space and space exploration. And he has a near miss with a group called Heaven's Gate weeks before the mass suicide. But there is something about this, these kind of movements which tell people that there is life outside of their, their expectance of what they currently live in. Does Ascadia have to be careful with their language and mission statement and elevation of a charismatic leader, someone like Asha Bailey, that they don't slip into or mimic the kind of language and patterns of something like Heaven's Gate? Groups like Heaven's Gate are not dedicated to space exploration. They're essentially a religion, and they want to get off Earth as fast as they can. More than that, they want to get out of the universe as fast as they can, uh, because death, by definition, is a pretty terminal end to your contribution to anything that's happening on Earth, and you can't make any more contribution after that. I don't think it's fair to say that space draws more of these people than, if you like, other sects and other, in my view, ill-advised religions. Dr. Asher Bailey can see the danger of this, and that's one reason that the state of Ascadi will never have a state religion. It's actually banned. You can believe what you want to believe, but you can't impose it on other people. Feel free to talk about it. But when it gets to the stage when you're trying to convert people, Dr. Ashwabedi would say you're missing the point here, because actually what unites us 
isn't a belief in a higher power. It's a belief in a higher purpose. And that higher purpose comes from however we got here, the fact that we are sentient beings and we have the capacity to travel and we have the capacity to fix problems and we have the capacity to explore and we've got the will to do it. Heaven's Gate and those don't seem to share any of those qualities at all. So I can't tell people not to join those sects, but I can tell people if you're looking for a sect, you won't find one in Ascardia. It's got no place in what we're trying to do. We're trying to responsibly reach out to the cosmos with whatever the human race has to offer. And suicide isn't part of the package. One of my favourite Sherry quotes from this segment is, she says, sometimes the UFOs try to look like aircraft in the sky. So don't be fooled by that. There is like a little sort of exciting moment during the, the evening where some people in the group think they've seen something that could be something, but they keep it quite vague. And Louis doesn't see anything because he was like, I don't know, looking the other way, distracted. <laughs> like a ball bounced past. That is the thing, actually. What would have happened if Louis had seen something in this episode? Two episodes in and he completely converts to being a full UFO believer, U- UFOlogist. On the Heineck scale, he has a close encounter of the second kind and there is a physical effect and then he is he's gone. What if there's an alternative timeline where he does become a UFO expert? Or just a mad conspiracy theorist. He's got like a radio station online only where he (laughs) just talks about all of his conspiracies. Sacked from the BBC in shame. (laughs) After two episodes. (laughs) (laughs) So Louis disappointed, but he's uh, with one of the women from the group. She says she thinks she might have seen two black flights, but then she says, you know, they're not necessarily UFOs. I saw something, but I don't know what it is. So she's very, very diplomatic and calm about it. And she says, that's what Ron, I think, was reminding everyone. You saw something, but you don't know what you saw. They're pretty down to earth, really. I think on the scale of conspiracy theorists, they're at the nicer end of it, potentially. Fairly normal. So then, obviously, we go to the absolute opposite end of the scale. Yeah. Which is central Nevada. Area 51. Area 51, the the mecca of UFO conspiracy theory. Louis goes on a coach tour to Area 51. So he's in the back of this this coach with a group of people who are never properly introduced. I don't think we really know who they are. Yeah, I'm not sure if some of them are the crew or if they're just people. And then the music of Talking Heads hits in and we have Road to Nowhere playing in the background. Perfect. Which was a lovely, lovely treat. Yeah, they're in the van and they drive up to the entrance to Area 51 where there's the, you know, keep out, no entry, government owned, we can shoot you on entry. And they get out and they say, come on, we've only got a certain amount of time before the guards will come and tell us to leave. And Louis's first question is, how do we harass the guards? He's not even out of the van yet. This is an element of Louis I totally forgot about, which is people will say, you can go this far, or I'm an expert in this field, please don't go any further. And there is some anarchic streak in Louis that says, let's throw some stones. You're being such a wimp, Renee. That's what he says. You're wimple tours. <laughs> I also wrote down Wimpo tours, which is such a ridiculously goading remark. What? You'd be such a wimp. <laughs> Renee, come over here. No, thank you. You'd be such a wimpolini. <laughs> Out there, tours. You, you're in there, tours. Oh. You're Wimpo tours. You're mean. Fair <laughs> mind, he's, a, he's nearly 30. He's a grown man. Harassing a woman and referring to her as a wimp. For not going up to the heavily armed soldiers who are guarding those baits. And then, of course, the guards who are sitting up on the hill in their white broncos start hoofing it down to come and confront them. And Louis runs away really fast. Leaving Rene. Rene, who's a bit older, maybe slightly out of shape. Not as athletic as... As Louis, who, as who Louis. You know, probably has double the stride with his height anyway. <laughs> he runs away and leaves her. And then the camera cuts to black which is quite nice. Yeah, it was very fun. The fear that they're going to steal the camera is what they keep talking about. He leaves Wimpo Tours. Uh... <laughs> no, she takes him back to meet the owners of the Little Ale Inn. Yeah, in Rachel, Nevada, which they describe as a community of about 78 people, which feels 
so remote and very odd. It's strange, isn't it? It's a, it's a weird vibe. Louis goes to the inn, Little Ale Inn. I, I mean, people in the show say, oh, it's a Little Ailey Inn, but that's not how they spell it. It's a Little no. Ale Inn. It's weird. But you want the alien gag. Yeah. He meets Pat and Joe, who are the owners, and then Glenn Campbell comes up in conversation, and there's beef between him and Joe. <laughs> So the little Elin, would you want to guess what its star rating is on Google reviews? Um, two point five. Four point five. Excellent. I think you'll find. Oh no! Well, now I'm worried that Joe's going to have beef with me as well. <laughs> <laughs> they have over nine hundred reviews talking about how how lovely it is there. Are there any pictures of the rooms? Yes. They are very basic. They look like they could be anywhere at all. That's a shame. You know, like with hotels when they say they spend all the money on the foyer, I feel like the Little Aileen did that with the diner. The gift shop. But yeah, the Little Aileen is a weird establishment. It's it's kind of part diner, part gift shop, hotel, and it's it kind of embraces all these things in this tiny community. But it seems to get so many visitors by the looks of Google reviews. I guess maybe because it's literally the only place you can stay. But uh, let's not be cynical like that. It sounds like it's really excellent. 4 out of 5. 4.5 out of 5. So we meet Pat and Joe Travis, who are very friendly to Louis. And Louis tells them he's going up to meet Glenn Campbell, aforementioned Glenn. And he asks Joe if that's okay, because he knows there's been issues between them. And Joe says, there was no division in Rachel until he got here so then we go over to glenn with louis and glenn if you haven't watched the episode he looks like tobias funke he looks like tobias from arrested development so much i almost thought it was david cross (laughs) playing him he is a a bald-headed man with a a small mustache with a a very odd peak cap on and glasses just imagine tobias funke and you will imagine glenn campbell yeah he only wears denim cutter shorts never never need (laughs) another conspiracy Louis obviously asks Glenn about the altercation with Joe, why Joe and Pat don't like Glenn. And the reason that Joe, or that Glenn doesn't like Joe, I suppose, is that, would you like to to describe how Joe described Glenn? I'm going to leave you with the gold that is his quote. But their dispute is about the fact that Glenn very much sees himself as a researcher, researching all these UFO sightings in Area 51. And he is against the commercialization that the little alien is clearly cashing in on big style. The amount of merch is insane. They're selling everything from t-shirts and jigsaws to like shot glasses. So people who are serious UFO believers and want to communicate with or, or kill extraterrestrials, depending on how you feel about them, this might be a little bit insulting, really. But the merch thing is is so prevalent. It's really, really interesting that people were clearly just buying so much crap because of aliens aliens need to get in on it and they could make some of the money oh my god maybe that's how we finally bring them down to earth is we offer them a cut of all merch sales so louis asks glenn what happened and glenn tells louis that when glenn was staying at the little alien joe came into his room yeah i think and was drunk apparently and told him he had to leave and glenn said okay that's fair enough. I will leave. Can I ask why? And Joe apparently called him a bald-faced fucker. <laughs> which Louis obviously takes quite a lot of enjoyment in repeating. And it cuts so to him saying to Joe, he says you called him a bald-faced fucker. And Joe says, yeah, yeah I probably did. He totally owns it. Yeah, Pat's a man I wouldn't mess with. I think if Pat called me a bald-faced fucker, I would take that and probably leave town. It's Joe. Pat's the lady, I think. Is it? Yeah. Okay, I've been confusing that. He looked like a pat to me. <laughs> He's a Joe. Then Louis tries to get Glenn to come to the little alien. I think he says it's some sort of conflict resolution. It's not that at all. No. Louis clearly wants to flare up. Yeah, in real life. And very much the way he mocks Renee for her limits. Glenn politely declines the idea of coming into the little alien. And Louis calls him a curmudgeon. And then repeats the bold face fucker line one more time. He's really miserable, isn't he, after this point, that Glenn won't do what he wants. It's the child thing coming out. There is actually a a shot around this point in the documentary where Louis talks about how he's bored and there's nothing to do, and he walks up to a sort of wreck of a car and just kicks it. (laughs) He's nearly 30. I totally missed that. It is like a stroppy child. Yeah, like a 12-year-old. It's interesting. So 
he goes around with Glenn and meets all of the residents of Rachel before he says goodbye to him. And they're some weird people. Yeah. I didn't write anything down about them. <laughs> no, I thought you had something gold here. I have nothing. <laughs> I remember there's, um, there's a lady who's lived there all her life. And she talks about the fact that they used to be allowed to go and picnic down where Area 51 is. And they used to do it every summer when she was a little kid. And then suddenly one day they went and did it. And some officials came up to them and said, you're not allowed to do that anymore. You have to leave. And that was like the beginning of Area 51. So she was here here before the aliens. And then everyone else is just really mad and building their own scale model flying saucer. You know, they're planning to build this space center in Inverness or just outside Inverness. Are they? Yeah, they're going to build a space center in Inverness. I'm not making this up. It sounds like I've gone mad. Is this what's going to happen to the Highlands? There's just going to be loads of people around there building strange flying saucers and and not being allowed to go picnicking where they once did. I really hope so. There is a UK spaceport proposed for a site in Sutherland. It will be the Highlands and Islands Enterprise. We'll be funding it. Is that like the Starship Enterprise? (laughs) Yeah, they have to call it that (laughs) if they get anything off the ground. After he meets the residents, he goes to the infamous black mailbox, which is white. It's disappointingly white. And he's standing around there with a number of other kind of slightly sceptical UFO spotters. But then one of them comes out with a very nice line. This is a bearded UFO spotter. He says, I'm here for what they call the human experience. That's why we're all here. The togetherness, I guess. Again, feeding into this line that these are not people really searching for things outside of this world. They want what's in this world, a bit of humour and interaction. Yeah, that's quite nice, really. I have down that a nice gentleman in a trucker hat says, if there's something to see, I'm prepared to be a witness. Yeah, see, it's very casual. It does have some sort of similarity to birdwatching. It's clearly a pastime more than it is a, an obsession for a lot of these people, I think. There's a man in this segment wearing a red jacket who is really high like quite obviously (laughs) off his rocket it's the desert they are in the nevada desert there is two references in this point to watch the skies and the truth is out there which like we talked about before the x-files was causing an absolute frenzy i think nevada must have seen an explosion in tourism around x-files at this point i mean honestly Mulder and scully perfect for the viewers, Alex once lent me the X-Files box set, which I did not watch. Did you not? I watched about three episodes and I very much enjoyed it. And then I think I left Edinburgh, so I don't think I got to finish it. Did I get it back? I think I did. Yeah, yeah, you did. You definitely got it back. Oh, you can borrow it again. I liked how you said yeah. for the viewers. Nobody's viewing this. <laughs> there is grey ones all around me as I speak. <laughs> right, I'm really excited about the next segment. This next segment is mad. Oh my God. It's really, really strange. I screamed at the television. And this is only the second episode. And it's the second time that a quite famous cult features in the episode. Yeah, so I knew nothing about this. So give some context about what happens in this segment. So there's a segment where it shows a little bit behind the scenes, I guess, where Louis really rummaging around trying to find some more people to be in this documentary. Or Louis and the production team, because it takes a village to uh, make a documentary like this, obviously. And one of the groups that he tries to get in contact with are known as Heaven's Gate. And if you know very much about cult type stuff, popular culture, true crime, you'll probably have heard of Heaven's Gate, who were a cult who ultimately believed that they should kill themselves in order to get to heaven and have a better life. And they were all going to live there and it was going to be great. And they decided to do it all together. They donned uniforms and called themselves the Heaven's Gate Away Team. They do actually show a little bit of footage of this in the documentary. And I always find it a bit haunting. Just all these bodies and bunk beds all in the uniform. But what's the casual way that they talk about it is Louis says, Heaven's Gate were too busy to appear because they had some stuff going on. But they did send him a patch which says Heaven's Gate's away team on it my notes on this bit were heaven's gate away team sounds like a football hooligan military unit they sound like a kind of ultras movement and then they show this footage you're right so they cut to they were a little bit busy and they go to the footage of a mass suicide of all these people dead in their beds the mass suicide took place on march 26th 1997 so whenever louis was filming was must have been 
moments before this happened and he gets sent a patch by them. It's really haunting, actually. And it's so quickly skipped past yeah. in this really fast sequence. He doesn't even talk about what happened at all. I guess you're just meant to know. It's pretty crazy that he just seems to have these brushes with really significant like cults and groups and, and things that happened. I wonder if he's still got that patch. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. Because that might have been one of the last ones they sent. It's really bizarre. Mm-hmm. Another thing I noted in this section was Louis' laptop and email are a thing of beauty. There's no italics. There's no bold font going on here. This is the most basic laptop and email setup I've ever seen. It was very enjoyable to see a 90s sort of internet. It's a laptop, though. That was probably cutting edge. So... After that... He gets dingied by Heaven's Gate. Yeah, and then he seems to upset a lot of cults in quite quick succession. Yeah, so there's a French man called Réal, who is a singer who has his own cult following, and then they show footage of him singing, and Louis shows off his, his French. And then we go from that quickly to the Aquarian concept community, who also, he gets as far as the door and then gets dingied once again, a third time by a different cult. They're on to him. He seems to be being shut out of this movement altogether, essentially. So after aiming big, <laughs> we're left with Reverend Robert Short. I mean, you say this, but I think they really struck gold with Reverend Robert Short of the Blue Rose Ministry. For just $50, he will channel an extraterrestrial for you. It seems to be that Reverend Robert Short has a line open through his brain to a particular planet and a particular alien being. The planet is called Solan 3 Caldas, is that right? Yeah. Louis d- does a little bit there where he pretends that he thinks the man is saying cold dust or coal dust, which really pisses him off. Louis loses control of this interview very quickly. He does. And then he acts out. Yeah, then he acts out. So Robert Shaw is talking about jumping between time dimensions and Louis tries to jump in and then the Reverend shuts him down in spectacular fashion yeah. and then carries on waffling on about time dimensions again. And luckily it did for them. They were very fortunate. Otherwise they could have lost their lives. So, so just and to jump in, so, so, they're, so, they're so, they, so they basically... Let me answer it. Sorry, sorry. Parallel sorry, sorry, solar sorry. system. So he talks about the para- as a parallel solar system. And he has access to the subspace radio network where he can speak speak to or channel Corton, who is his, his contact in the alien world. And then I guess Louis slips him the 50 and they go and do it. And honestly... <laughs> this is the only bit I remember of this documentary going into it. As soon as he started making the noises, I also remembered it. To picture this man, he, he looks like what Elvis would maybe look like today. Which is very harsh on Elvis, actually. This man it has, has nothing of the charisma or, or, or sheer good looks of, of the king. But he has the hairdo. Uh, and then he proceeds to have some sort of wheezing fit, which leads to him channeling the alien Corton, who uh, says, this is central control. You're not going to do the voice. No. <laughs> 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 I think if we were going to use a clip that was going to get us in trouble, let's use it here. This is Central Control. This is Central Control. Stand by. Information to follow. We are ready to transmit. We are ready to transmit. <laughs> Louis tries to ask him something and... Caught on as well as Robert Shaw just interrupts him. Because he can't ask any normal questions, Louis just asks the weirdest collection of questions. Yeah. He asks about the traffic. He asks about weather. He asks if Pat and Joe from the Little Ale Inn will make up with Glenn Campbell. He uses this as like a weird Google search <laughs> to find out more about bold face fucker Glenn and what is his issues with Pat and Joe. And he seems very frustrated with the whole situation by the end. Yeah. It's good TV. It's a very weird thing. I guess the payoff is when Reverend Short gets Louis to touch his sweaty chest at the end. And asks him, are you sweaty too? And Reverend Short's wife or partner or friend has also been sat there the whole time. Yeah. A a recurring theme of silent women just staring at Louis with 
with sheer disgust. Like you say, a funny segment, but quite an unsatisfying outcome. Luckily, there is a nice sort of tying up ending to the episode when Louis gets a voicemail message from Chris O'Brien in San Luis Valley. There's been a mutilated cow and its jaw has been excised and its eye carved out. No bums carved out. No bums, but his rectum is bubbling, as it is said in one point. I wrote that down too. This is the gory element of this where we see firsthand this big, huge, mutilated cow close up. It's quite dramatic, isn't it? It's obviously been dead for quite a while. It's totally rigid. It's covered in a tarpaulin. And you do see all of the gory bits. You are actually seeing it for yourself. It's a very bizarre thing that's happened. This is a proper interaction with something unexplainable. Your natural reaction to that is obviously cut a bit of it off and take its fluids and put them in jars. Yeah. And Louis gets stuck in. He helps out. Even though he is gagging at the smell of this this animal, he does carry around a little jar and helps out Chris. Chris is just business as usual. He'll be using it in his, his stand-up set later. He kind of laughs at Louis as well, doesn't he, that he's disgusted by it. I think actually Chris may be secretly the most unhinged man in this whole show. And that is saying something because there is a lot of interesting characters, but... Any man who can laugh beside the bubbling anus of a a cow has really got something about them. Have we considered that Chris might be doing this himself for attention? (laughs) (laughs) That's never asked and, and definitely should be. Chris, did you mutilate this cow? I think we might have to do some further looking into what happened to Chris after this documentary, just in case. Louis asks Chris, what do you think the chance of this being aliens is? And again, we get the answer. It's 50-50. It's one of those where everything in life is potentially 50-50. It either happens or it doesn't. But I don't think he's going to get good betting odds on it. But it is unexplained. It is unexplained. And in some ways, it's quite nice that nobody tries to really sell Louis this idea in an overbearing way. That's right, they don't, actually. And and also going from the very charlatan aspects of Reverend Robert Short to something which is physical and clearly odd is is a nice contrast, actually. It is very fear and loathing, though. This is, this is Hunter S. Thompson, Louis. Is this the grossest thing that happens in a Louis Theroux documentary? Ooh. At this early stage, yes. I think there may be other things that will happen later on, but witnessing a dead cow is, is up there. Or maybe it's actually just seeing the victims of Heaven's Gate casually in their beds with a passing glance is maybe the worst thing that's been in a Louis Theroux documentary. I do think that's an unusual thing for them to include. Yeah, it's an editorial decision that you think they probably would have made now. It almost trivialises it in a way if you don't know the context. Well, I didn't. I had no, I had no prior knowledge of this before watching this section. And then didn't quite grasp it. I, at first, I'll be honest, when you see them in the beds, I, I did assume it was people sleeping. And then only after reading up did I kind of clock that this is a, a comment on the fact that people died in this terrible mass hysteria. We kind of come to the end here with Chris and the bubbling anus. That's the, yeah. that's the end. And Louis plays Space Oddity on his own to play us out. There's quite a nice quote that I had written down from the end from Louis when he does the voiceover and he says though I hadn't been converted there was something I admired about the culture which I think we're we're both probably at that point too although I think you have been converted actually (laughs) so and then he says whatever gets you through the cosmic void is fine by me just don't lay a finger on my rectum and that's the final sign off of the the documentary that feels very much like a Friday 5pm idea to me (laughs) Let's wrap this up. Just do a joke. What are your thoughts overall? Good Louis, bad Louis? I think this is good Louis. This is this is almost exactly what I want from Weird Weekends. It's a real snapshot of something still really outsidery and and quite on the edge. The bits where he goes to like Rachel Nevada and that community of 78 people is really bizarre. Even throughout all the costume stuff and all the the badges and all the merchandise, there is still something really quite weird and odd and and interesting about this whole movement. I agree. I think it's good, Louis. I think it's shocking, weird, for a better word, alien, for another great word. Watching it, I was like, I want to go to Rachel Nevada, even though I would probably hate it when I got there. I mean, there's like 10 people there and a lot of tacky merchandise, but 
that's the thing it should make you want to give this lifestyle a go as well right yeah we obviously touched on the heaven's gate thing but i don't think there's anything really they could have done differently in that situation they didn't get the interview it sort of hints at what's to come it's like he's he's getting exposed to all of these cults and these scary big things and there's a part of him that's like yep working up to that we're gonna do that properly yeah so good louis agreed Thanks so much for listening. We would love to hear from you. So please do drop us a message at all through pod on Instagram or Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you.